circularity is the transition from the materials economy, the fact that actually we should be focusing on resources and carbon and the way that we treat materials in our culture. Today on the Second Renaissance, Danish architect Lasse Lin from 3XN and GXN pays a visit to the Think Studio. Lasse's specialisation is in the circular economy and sustainable architecture, and we sit down to explore some of their marquee projects like the Sydney fish markets and Denmark's and Australia's design love affair, what Lasse means by circular behavioural and digital designs, how sustainable architecture can help lower the emissions of the construction industry, which is currently responsible for one third of the world's emissions, biomimicry, closed-loop circularity, GXN's canary in the coal mine innovation, Lasse's design mentors and inspirations, and how Lasse's childhood in Danish nature has shaped his aesthetic use of light and power-generating materials. It was an illuminating conversation, and it certainly opened my eyes to how sustainable form and function can not only beautify our urban environment, but also make a significant environmental contribution when our buildings, in the words of Lasse, become cognitive. Now, a few words on pedigree. Lasse Lind is an architect and partner at GXN and 3XN Architects in Copenhagen, where he is head of consultancy. He studied in Prague, Damascus, and at the Royal Danish Academy, architecture in Hoovestaden, and specializes in sustainability and the circular economy in the construction industry. He also teaches as a guest lecturer at the Schalmers University of Technology in Gothenburg. Welcome to the Second Renaissance, Lasse. Lasse Lind, welcomen. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the Second Renaissance up here in Avalon Beach. Thank you so much. Thank you for, for having me. It's a pleasure being up here. Yeah. I feel like the Danes are taking over the northern beaches here. There must be some uh, sort of marriage made in heaven between Denmark and uh, and Sydney in some respect. We've got the Danish butcher across the road. I've got my old friend Mika Utson Popov, uh, who lives uh, here as well, and uh, and of course his name, his surname, will will remind us all that famous Danish architect uh, had a very very pivotal role in, in Sydney Opera House. But uh, what brings you to uh, to Sydney and Australia, Lasse? Yeah, besides the, the great weather and, and the nice beaches, as an office, we've been in working in Sydney in, in actually in, in many years. And I, I personally started uh, coming here in Sydney a lot uh, six years ago when we were sort of uh, in, in, in competition for the, the Sydney fish market. And um, and we've sort of since established an office here with with 20 people, and we've been around for six years as a kind of proper office here. As one of the partners based out of, of Copenhagen, I, I come here as much as I can to sort of support the, the studio, and, and there's a lot of, um, seems to be a lot of great things happening in, in, in sort of the, the built environment in, in Sydney and Australia, and then a lot of things sort of ripe for change, I would say. So, so it's a, it's a good time for me to, to come. I'm happy to be here. So what, what are the, um, so we obviously know about the Sydney Opera House and it's, it's linkage with, with Denmark and, um, Utson coming here for many years and now it's this iconic building. Um, but you guys are, uh, at, 
um, 3XN and GXN, which is the innovation arm of uh, of 3XN, you're really sort of reshaping, I guess, the next generation of Australian buildings down in Circular Quay yeah. and at Sydney Fish Markets. Do you want to just tell us a little bit what's going on there? And, yeah, sure. And, and maybe about how circular design and, and sustainability are playing a part in these buildings as well. Yeah, sure. I mean, we we were uh, we were fortunate enough to to win the uh, the so-called AMP Tower on, on Circular Quay. I think it was um, uh, maybe eight years ago in an international architecture competition. It is actually the the first high rise uh, uh, we've ever done as an office. And the reason why we uh, we got invited, I think, at that point, or because we 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 were not high rise architects, we did, we hadn't done it before, and we were not we were competing against much larger international practices. But the client had seen a lot of our low-rise commercial buildings. That has a heavy focus on community building through architecture, shared amenity spaces and very sort of social um, aspirations of, of, of architects and how architecture can bring people together. And they liked that. And they, they basically asked us, can you do that in a, in a high rise? And uh, so if, if, if anyone of the listeners, listeners uh, know the project, it's basically uh, five stacked boxes. So it's essentially five low-rise office buildings stacked into a tower, giving it that uh, more kind of human-scale identity within a high-rise uh, building. Uh, and I think that's the reason why we, we essentially won that project and the clients sort of took a risk on, on, a, on sort of uh, unexperienced uh, high-rise architects as, as we were at that point. Um, and, and the circular aspect is that there was an existing uh, building from, from the 70s on, on site, an existing high-rise that we sort of um, built on. So essentially, we've, we've, we've built the, the new building as, as, it, as it is, as it looks on the bones of an existing buildings from from the 70s and, and actually reused uh i think it's a 68 percent of the original structure to build the new structure which is obviously a, a kind of a, a pretty massive carbon saving as opposed to 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 knocking everything down and, and building a new um uh, so so that's kind of um it's it's quite a, a kind of flagship project for us in many ways. I think it's the, probably the first project in the world of that scale to, to do that, to, to basically graft on a new building on an, on an existing building in that scale and complexity. So um, it's obviously a project that's, um, that we're immensely proud of. And, and uh, I think also, to be honest, the, the industry in Australia and the city can be uh, proud of as well because we obviously didn't do it alone. We had a lot of local partners, uh, both in, in designing, but also obviously building it. Um, so, so yeah, in terms of circularity, it's a project that we're really using as an, as an example to say, well, there are these buildings that are, for various reasons, becoming obsolete around the world. A lot of buildings from the 1670s, 80s that are, for different reasons, a lot of the time, actually, they are... You know they are unlettable, or people don't like them anymore. They don't have the the social amenities or the the, the indoor uh, indoor qualities that you would like from a modern building. But we are definitely trying to argue and, and show through that building. Well, you can do new buildings out of old buildings, essentially. So so um yeah. So that's a, that's a that's a big uh, topic for us, uh, both due to carbon, but also because we think it's um, it has a lot of interesting kind of cultural elements as well. Do how do we how do we actually work with a part of our history, a part of our building stock, which is often sort of unloved. Uh, these buildings are often kind of referred to as being ugly or, or sort of, um, yeah, uh, unwanted somehow. Uh, but we have a huge amount of buildings from that that period. We built a lot uh, from the 60s and and forward. So, 
uh, we, we believe we have to take that quite seriously and, and, and try to, and try to work with it as, 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 uh, as resources for, for what we, we want to do in kind of society now, uh, with those types of buildings. Yeah. yeah amazing. Um, the construction and building industry, you know, even just the materials like concrete, uh, are massive carbon emitters. Um, do you have any like stats off the top of your head or anything we can we can reference and, and fact check later on? But like like how important from a climate change perspective is that we get this circular design and, and construction uh, into a decarbonized future, essentially? Yeah. So I mean. The, the building industry, I mean, we, we're often referred to as the one-third industry. So we're sort of accountable for roughly one-third of the emissions globally, roughly one-third of the, the waste production, and roughly one-third of the energy consumption. Uh, so obviously, being involved with the building industry, there, there's kind of a, a sense of, of responsibility of trying to to uh, to change this and to, to sort of bring down uh, emissions. And in the case of Key Quarter Tower, at the MP Tower in, in Sydney here, we actually saved uh, 12,000 tons of carbon, uh, which is sort of equivalent to uh, uh, 2,500 flights uh, Copenhagen to, to Sydney. So just to give it a bit of perspective, a fair bit of, of carbon saved from, from retaining the, the, the structure. And I think that that's the general picture that we're seeing when we kind of run our, our carbon analysis and what we're doing, that if we are able to retain materials or structures, um, obviously we don't have to produce that anew out of virgin materials. So there's both a carbon saving in sort of the production of of, of, of the building of, of materials, but there is also a resource, which is a, a different issue that we're facing, actually resource scarcity, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and um, uh, so, so there has these two implications or these two uh, potentials, um, uh, both sort of minimizing waste, but also minimizing uh, carbon emissions. Yeah. Now at 3XN, you have this um, approach to, to design, which is, to do circular design, behavioral design, and digital design. Can you just concretize what, what that means for uh, for us mere mortals? Yeah. Uh, so obviously, they're all kind of fairly broad uh, concepts, and but actually it was uh, sort of uh, our attempt to, to try to describe or put a lens on what is it actually we see as as major themes that are sort of influencing what what we do and if we start with the behavioral one i find it quite interesting uh as an architect i mean um uh, i think the, the famous danish architect uh, jan Geel has a has a famous quote and he says that we actually know more about uh, gorillas habitat in the jungle than we know about people in the urban environment, how, how, how we behave, what actually affects us. And I think that's kind of true. I mean, we, we actually don't, uh, we don't know that much about how built, the built environment actually uh, affects us, affects our behavior, affects our ability to either come together in, in, in kind of social synergy or, or the opposite. So we, we have quite a dedicated research uh, approach to trying to understanding what do our do, do, does our project do to people? So we go back to the crime scene, you could say, and actually try to study are the the, the ways that we design the building is is it actually working as we thought it would? Because we always design uh, with the with the user as the starting point. I mean, you 
you might find some architects who are sort of saying, you know, here's my brilliant sketch, make it happen. I like this form or whatever. But we we always start with the user, and the user is what drives our design and the user experience. So we are trying to get smarter about are the assumptions that we have when we design are they actually true? Uh, and um, and um, and that means yeah, that means studying uh, the buildings that we we do uh, from a kind of uh, social uh, and anthropological angle. So we employ uh, researchers in. in doing that uh, to 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 inform ourselves. So that's that's the one one and, thing. And then like what are some what are some tangible insights yeah. or foresights that you've derived from yeah, that sort sure. of anthropological I mean, approach? Yeah, sure. I mean f- one thing that we 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 always do a lot is we do these these quite big sculptural stairs and of course a, a stair as an architectural element it, it you know it brings you from a to b from one floor to the next but a stair can be much more than that it can be sort of a social furniture where you actually uh, meet people that you didn't expect to meet you can watch people from different parts of the building so uh, that's just one tangible element of architecture that we 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 almost always employ to say well the, the stair brings together more than uh, than floors. It brings together people. It, it is a kind of social heart of a building. And we've done a lot of studies on what, how does that then actually work? What do people do? How do they behave in, at the landing of a stair versus on the steps and 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 whatnot? So when we do a sculptural stair as an office, uh, it, it's not just because we like doing sculptural mm-hmm. forms. It is because we actually believe and can show through re- research that it has positive uh, social ef- uh, effects, you could say. So that's one sort of, sort of uh, specific element. Another element we're working a lot with is what you call the edge zones of buildings. How do you, how do you, how are you a good neighbor to what you're doing? How do you make sure that not just the users but also the passer passersby have an opportunity to linger or to rest or to find respite? With within the building that you're that you're you're doing, so the interface between a any build project and the public realm is very important to us, and I think maybe it's very Scandinavian. I I, I don't know, but we we take that very seriously that, that that a building should give back something to the public realm. It should it should bring more than there was there before in terms of. Uh, public benefits. So those are kind of, uh, I'd say, fairly specific things. Um, if we then talk about circular uh, design, it is very much, um, you know, uh, I, I think we've been talking about sustainability for 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 uh, for many years, and I, to to me. Uh, Circularity is sort of the transition from to talking much about the, what you could call the materials economy. The fact that uh, actually we should be focusing on on resources and carbon and the way that we treat materials in our culture uh, because we are on a finite uh, planet. And and f- so it is it is really t- trying to sort of specifically address how we take materials, make something out of it, and how we leave that for the future generations. So it's 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 really about how do we source materials, how do we put them together, how do we design things, and how do we enable future generations to assess these materials again for them to sort of continuously be and uh, have resources available to them. And then digital design, and we also call it technology design sometimes. It's basically, I think you, you cannot, in the time that we're living in, you cannot not <laughs> be engaged with technology somehow. It's it's affecting everything that we do. And, and for us specifically, it's a lot about how we actually work. How are we able to simulate things early in the in the design process? How can we get intelligence about what we do by including data? It's also increasingly how do the onslaught of digital technology affect how we engage with the built environment? I mean, it's it's actually... Some things are becoming uh, non-physical, you could say, in a way. There are things that we do today, like work, that doesn't have to happen in a specific 
room. It can happen anywhere. How does that actually affect the rooms that we make? You know, so that's a whole big, big topic that everyone is trying to grab, grapple with. And we certainly also are in the, in the built environment. But I think technology is affecting everything that we do. So it's kind of under underpinning, underlying a lot of the solutions that we actually try to make. If we try to uh, understand our carbon footprint as an office or as in a project, we are using technology to assess that. We're using technology to simulate that, right? So, yeah. So when, because when I hear digital design, I was kind of thinking, oh, maybe it's smart buildings, et cetera. Is that, is that part of it? Or it, it the is part of it, Or the office of the future? Yeah. Like what, what, are, what are your thoughts yeah, on Yeah, no, it's for sure. There's a big debate yeah. on hybrid workplace exactly. or whether we're going to go back into the CBD and yeah. all these kind of things. Have yeah, you got no, it's definitely sense? part of that. And it's also tightly connected to sustainability. I mean, how do, do your building perform? What is it's the te- technological systems that enables it to, uh, uh, you know, minimize energy consumption and minimize water consumption or increase well-being. It's kind of all driven by technology. And and, and certainly that whole post-COVID discussion on what is the office of the future is part of that. I I think for me, it's um, when I think about work and we do a lot of commercial projects, I mean, office buildings, essentially, I think a big answer there is is that uh, it's not enough to have desks, a lot of desks anymore. You need to have more. And a lot of that more is people actually being together because a lot of the work you do, you you can just do on your laptop from wherever, but you cannot uh, meet with your team. You cannot meet with people. You cannot have that kind of social interaction over teams, right? So the office of the future or the office of now needs to provide that in a good way is, is I, I think. Um, yeah, so technology is not enough, <laughs> uh, but but it's certainly it's certainly a big uh, big topic for us, of course. Yeah. You've talked a little bit about cognitive buildings. Can you just describe what that means and its impact on humans and yeah. and and the future of work? Yeah, so I mean, uh, I think as a concept, it uh, it is how do kind of how do you uh, how do buildings learn or how do you create buildings that are able to adapt. To, to change. And I think it's it's uh, both about technology, but it's actually also quite practical about how do you how do you build buildings? Do you build buildings with the with the capacity to change? <laughs> and it might seem a, a little bit abstract, but it is essentially uh, for example, I can I can mention in um in, in Kikota Tower, uh, we have these atriums that are up to nine eight or nine floors. And um, the 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 floor slab in that atrium is basically designed to be taken apart and and moved around in the freight elevator and that is done because which tenants will be there and how much floors they will have will will change over time right but you'll always like to have that ability to have a shared amenity space across an organization where you can see each other and where you can kind of co-work so it's building in that capacity to change when times are changing and i think it's the same with with technology if we can build in uh, the, the capacity for to uptake better technology or sort of uh, uh, change with with the with the with with the technological changes. Well, then you have potentially a building which you never have to knock down or you never have to uh, to sort of um, uh, uh, radically uh, destroy or because you have built in that kind of. Uh, um, capacity to adapt, and that's yeah. that's sort of a, mm. a cognitive build, a building that can learn from mm. its time and from the future. And I mean, we we, we don't know what the future is. Mm. So we, what we can do is we can think about how do you design for that sort of uncertainty? How do you build that in? Mm. So that's something I'm, I'm quite um, it's quite close to us. We we like to build in that sort of 
transformation capacity or adaptability uh, to what we do. Yeah. I mean, when I think about buildings and circular design, you know, notions um, like biomimicry come up, and I think there's a you know quite a famous example from Zimbabwe where they when they wanted to build a new bank. One of the constraints was we don't want to put any air conditioning in it. So then they studied uh, a termite stack and and how that was structured. Um, and as a result, um, you know the termites live in in what is kind of the optimal uh, environment for 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 termites. Uh, but apparently, it also just worked in terms of the, having this natural air conditioning, etc. Anyway, this is I don't know if it's an urban myth this story no, no, or not, true. but um, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm curious, from a circular design perspective, biomimicry or otherwise, like how is design or architecture inspired by nature, and what what can we learn from having a kind of a, a closer human relationship with, with nature? It's a great question, I think, and I I, I mean I, I actually think for there's probably for as long, uh, at least for very long, been an architect and designer who's, who's been inspired by nature in terms of nature's forms and nature's expressions. You will have architects like Gaudi in Spain who has all these amazing forms that kind of resemble uh, sort of uh, natural uh, structures. Uh, what I think is, is is what we probably need to learn is exactly what you're saying, that the actual biomimicry in terms of understanding the systems, how do you uh, nature uh, basically support itself or how does nature actually work in, in closed loop systems? And that's an, a new thing for many, at least modern architects, I think. You'd probably have like more traditional vernacular architecture who naturally sort of works with the climate because they had to. They didn't have a lot of air conditioned units or, uh, you know, available to them, right? So th they had to work with that, uh, with that stuff. So, and we have to relearn that in a sense and kind of reintegrate ourselves into some of these, uh, th these systems. And I think, uh, I'm, for example, uh, quite interested in, in, in how do we, we deal with water in the built environment. And I mean, nature has a, an amazing capacity to, to clean water naturally, uh, through different processes of, of kind of, uh, uh, bacteria and, and, and sort of sediments that can clean water. And why shouldn't we, you know, utilize that in the built environment? Do we need to have all kinds of big kit, uh, to deal with the water? Or can we, can we use nature? And I think for me, that's a kind of constant inspiration that we, we should, we should seek to have. And the, the example from, from Zimbabwe is a great one. Look, how can you actually look at nature and, and, and learn from that in, that intelligence, not just from sort of a formalistic, um, a formalistic sort of point of view, but more like, how does it actually work? You know, how, how do, how does nature clean water? How does nature regenerate itself? How does nature provide habitat for for various species right and there's definitely a lot of inspiration that we we can we can find there yeah. mm. i mean the, the notion of sort of green roofs yeah. and you know urban gardens and beehives on, on the roofs of buildings that's been around for a little while but like can you just give us an example of how this approach to cleaning water mm. might work in a you know in a CBD office building, for example, yeah, I mean, and where, where would you utilize the water? Is it just is it just for like an urban garden on the top, or what? What else can it, we do it, with it? It could be, or it, it could be for for uh, I mean, you, uh, it could be for washing toilets or uh, you know shower or, or all kinds of things. I mean, we've done a couple of projects. Uh, we, we've done one in Denmark where we're using algae, active algae, to actually clean the water, and then it's recirculated back, and 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 basically you, there's a hundred percent closed loop water system within the building. The great thing about the, 
these types of technologies, these types of ideas, is that you you get the benefit of of actually having nature in the in the city or in the built environment, right? Which you want. So it could be like green roofs, as you're saying. One, you you have you 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 get a better city out of it, but you also get the capacity to, in terms of green roof, it's kind of retaining water. So and you know potentially collecting it and reusing it so you don't have to kind of uh, uh, transport it too long and spend energy on that. So I think it's, it's uh, I'm quite interested in how do we make more local solutions for water, energy, biodiversity? How can each building, each part of a city be part of enhancing biodiversity, for example? Like how, how, can, uh, how can we do that? And how can we kind of, as humans, actually get the benefit of that? I think Most people like a green city. It, it, it's simply a better city. If you've been in a city where there's no greenery, it's, it's not a very nice city. So I think it's about, um, there's a kind of changing notion from, well, greenery is a lawn that we can walk on to actually, well, greenery in a city can be something that enhances local biodiversity. It can be a green space for people, but it can also be something that's that caters to more species than just humans. And I think that's the kind of change in, in, in perception of what is the built environment actually supposed to do. It is actually supposed to be, hopefully, be part of solving some of the issues that we have, right? It needs to be because we're so many people living in cities these days right so for me the the urban condition or the, the city is is a is ultimately a chance to be be part of solving some of these things for example water scarcity or um or biodiversity crisis because it it's in the city i think it it can we can do it because we have the mass and we have the kind of critical mass of people uh in a sense even though it's difficult and i mean th this is interesting right because oftentimes and, and throughout history we've seen this whether it's with pandemics or whether it's when cities get too polluted yeah. that some people go we're just going to move to the countryside we'll have a tree change a sea change you know we'll go where the air is clean and Nowadays, though, the, the data seems to suggest that even with the rates of urbanization around the world, that the most sustainable place you could actually live is in a, in a city because of the density, et cetera, and the opportunities for smart buildings and all the rest, and that um, actually moving to the countryside um, at this stage might not actually be a major contribution um it might be on the individual level that it might be a, a super you know simple lifestyle and all the rest and you're connected to the hobby farm or you know a coast house or whatever it happens to be have you got any any thoughts or reflections on that and how, how cities yeah. can play a role from a sustainability yeah sure i mean I, i think uh you're right i mean i certainly uh, uh think that that's uh, i understand people who, who move to the countryside it, uh, from a kind of personal perspective it, 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 it it's a nice thing uh, for sure but i mean i think cities are there's a lot of things that can happen in cities that that in, in relation to sustainability which is quite important and um the density is is sort of uh part of that and i think we're uh, we should probably be looking into a much more shared economy sharing a lot more stuff basically producing a lot less sharing a lot more And in general, that is uh, a lot easier to do in a city because you are close to each other, basically. And I, I can mention one example uh, because I know it very well from myself, and that's, for example, car mobility, uh, having a, your own car. And of course, if you if you live uh, far from other people, you, you you need to have a car. That's 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 simply how it is, right? Or at least for a lot of people. I live in central Copenhagen, and um, it's a city where it's extremely convenient to bicycle. It's actually faster for me to to take my bicycle around. It's also culturally acceptable. It's not like I'm the, 
the only one taking a bicycle. It could be everyone does it, so it's not like a statement or anything like that. It's just a culture that exists, right? And uh, when I do need to have a car, uh, share cars are extremely available to me. They're very close to where I live, and they have a dedicated parking space, and it's hell to find parking in, in, in central Copenhagen. So it is more efficient, it's more healthy, it's, uh, it's more convenient, Uh, it's cheaper <laughs> and and it's culturally accepted. It, it's not, uh, you know, it's, it's it's part of the culture. And I think in that small little example, it's actually ingredients, the ingredients list for a lot of the changes that we probably need to make as as, as sort of cultures. Like how do we change as cultures? Well, I mean, most people are not going to do it if it's not convenient and if it's not uh, if it's not uh, good for them or good for their lives. So. Uh, I, mean, I mean, I think it's interesting to look for how do we, how do you find that sweet spot between? Yes, it's it's better for the environment that I don't have a car, but actually, it it's not necessarily why I do it. Well, I think the the statistics in in Australia is that the average car stands idle for 23 hours a day. So uh, clearly, there's you know some latent potential within that. I mean, I know from living in Surrey Hills for many years that uh, Go Get was my go to from a transport perspective and it wasn't just an environmental choice it was just like well you know it was on demand it was super easy could even always find a parking spot no matter where where i went uh and um even as we started having kids um it became an option for us because they were also cars geared towards families etc people movers etc so you know it can work for different stages in in life as well but of course some of those you know collaborative consumption notions that you speak of you know like a car sharing scheme could it work out in dubbo or in wagga wagga <laughs> or in regional areas here in australia or is it just more well, challenging I, yeah it's probably more challenging but i mean i'm, I'm certainly not i appreciate that that There's also people who, who want to live in the country, and I think that, that's that's uh, I, I completely understand that. So I think, but I do think, um, I mean, if you if you look at how a lot of uh, more rural societies or communities uh, used to work, uh, at least in 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 the parts of the world where I'm from, um, you would actually have a lot of space, but you there, there would be certain things that you kind of bundle together and share, right? Uh, and you'd have uh, you had something like. Um, The, the co-op uh, uh, union in Denmark, which is basically all the farmers coming together to to share some of the production facilities, even though they had their individual farms, they shared uh, parts of the production facilities in order to sort of sell their milk, for example. And I think uh, there's certainly also a kind of uh, re probably rediscovery of, of some of those synergies and sharing economies, also in a rural setting. I would generally probably think that it's probably a bit easier. For some of the things we talk about here in an urban environment, because you're, you're just more people to share something and it has more scale. But I, I think probably the same idea sh should, should be employed in, a, in more rural settings. But obviously you're right. I mean, if you have to walk 10 kilometers to get your sharing guide, yeah. it might not be that, uh, yeah, yeah. that attractive, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Well, you got, I mean, you got other, other mobility solutions here, like car next door here on the northern beaches up on the peninsula. There's not as, uh, as many go gets. There's a few scattered in, you know, various places like Monavale and DY and Brookvale and all the rest. But uh, I guess the rates and incidence of car ownership is high here. But people have done this sort of neighborly swapping um, schemes like Car Next Door where you're essentially just borrowing someone else's car for a few hours and you can book those in. Uh, they don't seem to have um, reached sort of mass adoption yet, but they are around. You mentioned moving to the country a moment ago. Uh, we've talked 
a fair bit about Denmark, but if we just go back to your to your childhood, what what childhood experiences in in Denmark have influenced your design thinking and any any anecdotes that we, yeah. uh, that you're happy to share? Yeah, sure. I can. Uh, I, I mean, I think I grew up in sort of the suburbs and in a kind of kind of green environment. A lot of a lot of uh, nature around me, and I, I certainly think that 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 uh, uh, kind of inspired me uh, inspired me quite a lot. I think as a society, probably in Denmark, I think what if I should say something that kind of inspired me as a as a designer, as an architect, I it is a pretty uh, you could say. Uh, equal society and a kind of socially oriented society, as as, as probably uh, many people will, will know. And I think uh, the Danish design tradition is very much that you you're actually doing stuff for people that are solving problems for them. <laughs> you're trying to to use your design and your creativity to solve problems and to make everyday life for the ordinary person better. And I think that's that's probably my design philosophy as well. I I, I think design. I would like to try to solve problems for people and make people's lives better. So it's not so much about, I hope, and not so much about me or my ego or my kind of desire to express something. It is more actually about trying to use creative creativity to yeah to solve issues for for, for people. And then you can say there are stuff that I like from maybe a, a kind of aesthetic perspective. I like natural materials. I like things that are not like that that are what they seem to be that are honest uh, which i think is probably again part of the of the maybe the design tradition and um, i mean you'd rather just see a material as it is and see the beauty of that in, instead of kind of trying to cover it up uh, if i should mention kind of one experience or one memory that i have i have uh, i have a kind of a strong strong recollection of lying in my parents' uh, garden and kind of looking up at the trees and the kind of birch trees and the, and the light coming through the, the leaves. And that was always kind of a very strong image for me that has um, a lot to do with architecture and space, actually, I think. You're lying underneath the tree. You're sort of in a space. You have daylight coming down in a sort of very specific kind of shimmering way and uh, you know, feeling comfortable in a sort of a soft lying on the grass. And I, I think that notion of space where you're sort of, you are in, you're outside, but you but you feel as if you're sort of protected or covered is a, probably a very basic uh, notion of what architecture can be. Uh, and I, I think a lot of good architecture is, it is this safe shelter for, for humans, but it is in close nature, in close relation to the outside and to, to nature and to, uh, to light, daylight, essentially. I mean, in in Scandinavia, we're obviously spoilt with sunlight in in summertime, and then uh, it's a very scarce resource yeah. in in winter. So I'm curious that that sort of example of of the birch tree and the filtered light coming through, and like, is that something that you've been able to translate or have seen examples of that being translated into to buildings? And and if so, how? Yeah, I think. You know, I think the working with daylight as a as a resource, as something you 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 always like to have somehow. And of course, you're right that there's uh, in different climates there's different kind of approaches to how you deal with 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 daylight. And it's also a sustainability example. The more natural light, the less electric light you need, right? But I think uh, I can mention one project that that uh, I was part of in in Denmark where we did these uh, big skylights. We got a lot of light down into sort of a conference space and there we used pvs to sort of make this kind of shimmering effect so on one hand the light was kind of coming through uh the glass but at the same time parts of it was kind of uh, reflected by by p solar pvs uh, solar cells so it was producing energy clean energy at the same time so you got this kind of ornament of the solar cells kind of 
drawing patterns on the floor. You have the daylight, so you have this kind of, for me, a strong kind of uh, synthesis between technology, a kind of green technology, and a, a kind of architectural experience, daylight. Uh, so, so for me, that's a kind of a strong example of what I, I guess I'd like to do as a, try to do as an architect to, to make that kind of synthesis between uh, yeah, outside and inside and, 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 and a more, let's, let's call it sustainable or, or kind of uh, climate conscious uh, way of using materials and technology. Yeah. I, think, I mean, I think that's a beautiful example of, you know, <laughs> seeing that the birch tree leaves in action <laughs> to, to a degree in a very, you know, digitally transformative, but also, um, you know, very sustainable fashion as well. So um, that's an interesting example of sort of your design thinking at, at play. I'm wondering, like, whether it's Sydney Fish Market, you, you've, you've mentioned um, the, the building in, in uh, Circular Quay, the old AMP building. Can you give us any other numbers on the sort of climate positive outcomes of buildings that either inspire you or you have been responsible for at uh, 3XN? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, maybe it's good to talk a bit about the fish market because it's actually a, kind of my baby as a project. Uh, it's it's one of my favorite and projects. And one that all Sydney siders yeah, are excited I, I, about. I hope, <laughs> I hope so much that, that people will enjoy it. I think that's uh, that's a, probably a project that that speaks a lot about our, our kind of design approach as, as a studio. I mean, if, if you if any of you have, have kind of seen the, the image of it, it is, it is this kind of massively big undulating roof uh, scape that is that is kind of covering the, the the upper ground floor with with all the retailers and then you have the lower lower ground floor with the wholesale and the auction and it's actually one big public space it's a, it's kind of a sweeping movement from from the from the uh, the sort of um, walk along the water and up into to the upper ground floor with the kind of public big public uh, uh, stair uh, stairway but actually the way that the um, the, the roof is done is is primarily driven actually by environmental concern. It it, it might look like a very funky, uh, maybe even a kind of a, almost like a stingray, uh, which is which is of course uh, great. But uh, but it's actually it's done in a way. The 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 the, the reason behind the form is uh, first of all it lifts up where there needs to be sort of uh, additional program. So there's some kind of um, mezzanines with the cooking school and whatnot. But actually what it also does is it's shaped in a way so in two wells it collects all the water that hits on the roof. It's a massive Roof. I think it's like two anfield. If that means anything to, to anyone, it's like two big soccer references here. So so it's a, it's a massive roof, and and there's a, when as you will know better than me, when it rains in Sydney, you, you sometimes get these real pours. So there's a lot of water falling on that uh, on that roof, and um, they, they do spend a lot of water inside the fish market. So all the water that that is coming uh, that, that lands on the roof will be collected in two kind of pits and then taken down and recycled within. So uh, at the same time, the 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 hoods of the the um, um, uh, the, the roof, the hoods, uh, kind of the, it has these kind of pointy hoods uh, elements, and they are uh, close towards north, where you have the sun in mm. in Sydney, yeah. and uh, it's cladded with solar cells, so it will produce energy, and it's open towards south, so you get the indirect daylight down into the um, to the uh, to the to the uh, fish market. So you, on one hand, you'll produce energy, but you'll also get that kind of natural uh, light down, and at the same time, it's 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 oriented so that it kind of uh, uh, catches the prevailing wind, so you get a kind of natural ventilated space uh, underneath. And actually, when we received the brief uh, from the for the fish market, it was described as one sort of uh, a box, a vent, uh, sort of a conditioned box, basically like a shopping mall, and. 
we were quite clear through our design that we thought it would be great to utilize the, the great climate that you have here in, in, in Sydney to create an actual authentic market experience that would at the same time uh, minimize resource consumption essentially. And for the fish market, I, I think if I remember correctly, we will reduce the water consumption, I think it's by 70% um, uh, based on, on, on the baseline of what they're spending today. Yeah. So, so fairly significant. Um, so not just on the expense side, but you're actually harvesting the yes, rainwater. Yes, we're, we're recycling water yeah. and of course we're also putting in more efficient kit uh, yeah. than they have now so mm. so it'll be much more water efficient in that way i, I believe it is around uh 70 percent that that we're uh um that we are uh, reducing that i cannot remember the energy consumption how much it is but it is also a, a pretty high number that we're reducing based on more passive systems and having having the pvs on the roof mm. i guess it just goes to to say that we try to find this linkage between what we consider to be good design but driven by environmental concerns is, is essentially right so it's not because we want it to look like a stingray it's because it actually does something it performs in a certain way uh, and 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 then it ends up looking in a way that we obviously find uh, aesthetically pleasing as well. Yeah, and no fishy smells around either. Uh, let's see, but hopefully <laughs> <Yeah>. not. <laughs> I mean, we're living in a you know, I'm not, not talking necessarily about fish smell here, but um, you know, in a in a, in a polluted world, um, partly fired by or energized by coal fired power plants. Uh, sadly, um, you've created the. Airbird at GXN and 3XN, um, which is sort of inspired by the metaphor of the canary in, in the coal mine. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about the metaphor of the canary in the coal mine, but also how it's sort of inspired one of your, I guess, retrofitted or integrated um, sensors in buildings? Yeah. Sure. I mean, maybe for people who who don't know about sort of the canary in the coal mine, it, it uh, coal miners back in the day used to bring down a, a small canary bird because uh, it would chirp, and if uh, kind of toxic gases that you don't sense while you're down there, if they uh, uh, sort of uh, the, the levels became too high, well, then it would stop chirping, and they would know now it's time to to get out. Um, and we sort of used that uh, that metaphor for modern day schools and offices where actually a lot of indoor environments have major problems with uh, CO2 levels, for example. And it's a little bit the same. You don't notice, you, you're like the, the frog in the in the boiler, right? You don't really notice it, but actually your cognitive function uh, weakens. You you could become tired, you fatigue. So especially in schools, for example, it's, it's a, in some schools, it's a pretty big issue that actually kids are you know they're they're learning less because of the indoor environment and they're 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 having health issues due to that so it was kind of a a product that we developed together with partners in in, in denmark uh kind of a, a company called leapcraft and, and company called velux uh, the big sort of uh, uh, manufacturer of, of windows to do sort of um an uh, indoor uh air quality notch, you could say, but in a friendly design. So so we designed a, a, a small sensor as it is. It looks like a bird, uh, kind of aesthetically <laughs> pleasing bird, let's say, uh, that you can hang on the wall or put on your table. But what it does is at certain CO2 thresholds, that you can you can uh, you can um, you can set it chirps. So when you go above a certain uh, threshold, it, it makes a chirping sound, and that is then meant to notch people to either open the window, relocate, uh, you know, do small things to improve their own indoor environment essentially. And we've uh, we've tested it out in quite a few schools, and it's it's 
uh, it's been quite a quite a good uh, story for the kids because they it, it's a friendly product. I mean, I think if you put up a sensor, it will be a little bit more sort of yeah. maybe alienating to a lot of people. But because it has this kind of bird look and and something that's nice to touch and so on, it, it almost becomes like a friendly classroom uh, pet <laughs> that yeah. that sort of enables. Um, Enables them to to kind of improve on their own uh, uh, their own uh, well being essentially. Um, so I, again, I guess it's a, it's an example of of trying to uh, marry technology and and sort of indoor climate concerns with each other in a, in a way where design becomes the sort of facilitator for that, right? Yeah, yeah, and a nice sort of cap nod to coal mining history, yeah. but also how it integrates with with nature and what intelligence nature can actually have yeah. towards toxicity and, yeah. and other concerns and, and how the interplay between human and nature is played out in the past and also in in the future. Um, what do you think it is about the Scandinavian or the, the Danish approach to architecture, uh, design, that wins Australian hearts and minds? And what can this nation of Australia learn from the Nordics from a sustainability perspective? I ask you as we sit here in front of like all these Danish art pieces, uh, by the way. Yeah, yeah, I feel right at home here. It's, it's, it's great. Um, there's a, a new, I mean, good history of, of sort of, uh, especially Sydney sort of uh, embracing da Danish architecture, of course, from, from Jan Utzon and the and the Opera House, but also Jan Gehl, uh, who I know, I, uh, he's not as famous, but he actually is a, he's an urban thinker from Denmark who who wrote the book uh, Cities for People, uh, who is basically sort of a protest against, against modernist city planning or urban planning, saying, well, uh, we are planning everything for cars, we should be planning for people. And his thinking, I think, has influenced a lot of people in Australia and in, in Sydney um, as well. And I guess what I hear uh, from why people like to work with us as, as, as kind of foreigners coming, now now we are actually locals because our, our studio in, in, in Sydney is a full-fledged studio with with lots of Australians working there. But but when we, we, we started working, I think what, what we understood to be the, 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 the quality is one, that we probably bring a certain set of kind of embodied values to everything that we do. I think it's pretty embodied in Scandinavian culture. Some of the stuff I talked about before, well, you're actually trying to design for people, design for users. You're not a star architect trying to sort of... Uh, 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 and then there's been a point in time in, in, in architectural history where you, you, you wanted that star quality, you wanted that big architect coming in with the, the fantastic idea, whereas uh, we are sort of, I guess, much more process-oriented and we, we, we will listen to people and we'll work with people. And I think that's the feedback we're getting that we used to work with and we, we listen to to the people that we're working with. So I think there's a cultural piece where maybe some some parts of the world and maybe Australia is looking to Scandinavia for some of the solutions to how can you maybe have a more socially oriented development in in, in buildings and in cities. And then on the other hand, it's, it's, it's actually the people and the culture of an office that's not only comprised of Danish people, by the way, we are a very international office. I think we have 22 nationalities working at our office, but maybe there is a, at the root of that, there is maybe a Scandinavian culture. I think there is a Scandinavian culture of collaboration and curiousness and uh, non-hierarchical, uh, I'd like to think, way of working where the best idea wins and you actually listen to people, which I think a lot of people, in, you know, it's, we're good to work with in that sense. So it's not just the fact that uh, the only Australian royal lives in Copenhagen. Oh, that uh, might help too. That yeah. might help too. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Proud history of uh, <laughs> yeah. of Danish Australian uh, marriages, yes. uh, literally and, and metaphorically. 
what are your mentors or uh, inspirations in the circular economy space? And uh, I guess building on that, you know, what resources can entrepreneurs or creatives, change agents, mere mortals, humans, uh, check out to help them evolve from a sort of linear economy thinking to to more of a circular economy of thinking? For me, um I mean, I'm gonna uh, mention some of the kind of old heroes uh, that, that 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 inspired me uh, maybe 10, uh, 10, 15 years ago, and that's that's people like Bill McDonough and Michael Browngard who wrote Cradle to Cradle, the book on Cradle to Cradle, uh, and we worked with them on on translating some of their philosophy in, into the built environment. They, they inspired me a lot uh, when I first read the read the book because they were the first that I read to sort of put a language to a system that looks radically different than the system we have today without sort of just only talking about all the stuff we need to reduce and all the stuff we, we need to not be doing, but more about where are, where are we actually supposed to go somehow, uh, which I found, found very inspiring. And, and, and kind of from that, you know, there are the Ellen MacArthur, who, who was the sort of founder or, or initiator of the circular economy movement and Ellen MacArthur. Ellen MacArthur, MacArthur yeah, exactly, founder, yeah. exactly, which is a very inspiring, uh, speaker and, 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 and writer too. And increasingly in, in, uh, in these uh, last years, I'm, I'm sort of reading a lot about degrowth as a, as a concept, how, how, how will that work? Uh, and increasingly also some of the sociologists who are talking about uh, writing about uh, a new ecological class. How, how do you actually, how do you create a cultural social movement that enable all of us to change, basically change culture, uh, which is certainly not an easy thing to do, but, but some of those thoughts are kind of inspiring me. And for the life of me, I can't remember the names right now. Maybe we can link to no, it. And, we'll have, uh, yeah. But, but, um, but, but, but I mean, I think that the, I, for, for, for people who haven't read it out at, uh, I'd, uh, encourage everyone to, to read sort of, uh, Cradle to Cradle, Remaking the Way We Make Things. It's a very philosophical book. And I think it's, it's still valid today, even though it's 20 something years old. Yeah. Cool. We'll put that in the in the show notes to the second renaissance as well. Um, I mean, we met sort of fortuitously via um, the Cape Mackerel Cabin, our little Airbnb, my um, very Swedish-inspired summer house at Mackerel Beach here in, in Sydney. It's a little ode to the Stockholm archipelago uh, that I'm trying to recreate here in, uh, here in Australia. Now, Australia's coastline, including... Uh, mackerel beach um, is being battered by rising sea levels, coastal erosion, more frequent floods, landslides, including uh, near our property at Mackerel Beach. These things are becoming more common and um, houses, property are taking a, a beating at the moment. How can circular architecture help mitigate against climate risk? Not just in the big cities, but also just in terms of how climate ready people are in terms of just their primary housing any yeah. any thoughts on that yeah i mean uh it's a great place you have uh, there on macro beach by the way amazing uh, amazing uh, place um we'll come back anytime yeah thanks <laughs> yeah i mean without uh, being any kind of expert on, on kind of coastal erosion or or uh, especially in australia i think the a general um a thing that I, I believe it's a kind of right approach is that climate is changing and we need to design with that and not against that. Uh, and that means, for example, raising sea levels and uh, increased precipitation. And I think generally, you know, uh, what I would call nature-based solutions are the way to go. So when we have increased uh, rainfall in, 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 in our cities and in our, uh, you know, everywhere, instead of bigger, building bigger sewers, we should 
be look thinking about where do we allow the water to run? Can we have seasonal lakes? Can we have sort of nature-based solutions where overflow areas, wetland areas, where the water can go when there's too much of it, and then it can go away when there's not that much of it? And the same with, with uh, I think, with coastal protection. Can we uh, create uh, solutions based on kind of natural, instead of building big, you know, concrete uh, walls to keep out the um, uh, the water or to keep the, the the soil in, we should probably generally be looking at, well, for example, if you talk about soil, are there things you can plant which RootsNet will in time, you know, improve what we're, what we're seeing here? Or are there things you can do in the water in terms of letting, you know, some of the water come in in specific places or stuff like that and, and in terms of how we build i think we, we we probably in some areas we we will probably have to to build houses that can that can float or are standing mm -hmm. on stilts or or things like that right to to build with it because it's certainly an issue and i, I think in general my approach would be that we, we need to design with with that fact and and not think that we can we can keep it out because that's that's probably in in in, uh, in the bigger picture, the, the wrong attitude. I think we need to design with it somehow. Um, mm -hmm. So maybe it's not a very uh, specific, practical question to how you you deal with kind of landslides in in Australia. I'm no expert there, but I mean, my general approach would be be that of sort of nature based solutions. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, certainly up at Mackerel Beach. I mean, we do our best. You know, we we harvest rainwater, so all the all the water we drink is 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 from the sky. Uh, filtered four or five times um, but uh, and that's you know that's what we would use in the garden as well and 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 all the rest and then you know we have an independent sewage system for example which you know lots of microbial or mi microbacterial activity going on there but it also becomes fantastic fertilizer for example so you know we, we are trying to work with with nature there and certainly in terms of you know plant landscape etc using natives etc to make sure that you know <laughs> hopefully we can prevent future landslides yeah, as well yeah, um I, i'm just thinking like when, when you think about the future um and what the built environment your designs other designers can contribute um at 3xn gxn like what what sort of sustainable legacy do you want to leave to your children but also the next generation of, of humans in a hopefully better tomorrow it's a great question and a big question as well i mean i i guess uh i guess i hope uh for myself and for the company i'm part of that probably the the best thing we can do is to inspire people i think because certainly not one project on one company is going to solve uh, the, the issues that we have in, in front of us. But I do hope that we can be part of uh, inspiring uh, more people uh, to, to sort of engage with the issues we have around climate change and, 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 and um, the sort of um, uh, sustainability, uh, achieving sustainability. And I guess my uh, I, where I see my hope or my role is that I can be a small part of creating sort of a, um, uh, a movement wherein these things become uh, not obstacles for for us, but but actually a new chance to put meaning and ethos into what we do as as designers or architects or anyone. Basically, educating people or telling people or giving people knowledge is also part of that. We we sort of all are trying to do our little part 
in in understanding the the new paradigm that we are hopefully and we have to move into. And I I hope in terms of of my kids and my legacy that I'll I'll have paid, played kind of a a small part in that of creating and, and defining that movement and, and 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 giving it form because that's what I then do as a, as an architect, right? Are there any like practical tips that people, Aussies, you know, whether you have, you know, a, a big a big sort of portfolio of you know buildings, or if you even just thinking about your own home, either as a tenant or as a as a homeowner. Like, and you're thinking about renovations or retrofitting, et cetera. Like, are there some simple things maybe a homeowner or, or even a, a tenant, a renter can do to think about circularity um, and any resources they should be thinking about if they ever have plans for renovations or improvements? Yeah, I think in general, very generally speaking, I mean, you you could say materials that are natural, that are without uh, you know toxic chemistry and without sort of uh, generally not treated with all kinds of uh, funky chemistry are, are are the best to use. If you come from natural renewable sources, you you are likely in a good place. Uh, so that's An example kind of, being Tasmanian oak, for yeah, example. There you go. Right, exactly. A regenerative material, local, locally sourced, probably locally manufactured. I mean, stuff like that is is sort of a good general rule. I think. If I should say anything to to sort of the, the people out there, or general persons around, what the, probably the biggest impact in terms of sustainability that that a, a, a one person can have, I actually think. And for many, it's like yes, it's it's great to recycle, it's great to eat less meat, it's great if you can drive less and all that. But actually, where you put your money, <laughs> where you invest your money, is probably the biggest impact you can have. If you have any money <laughs> and you are putting them somewhere in a, in a, in a bank or a financial institution, you should try to see where they can do most value in terms of, of the transition that we're doing, because that's actually as a private person with, with some means, obviously, uh, that's probably the biggest thing you can do. I would say, uh, that's actually thinking about where, where, what are your money actually spent for on a kind of larger, how, how are your money being invested or how are they being used? And there are, banks and institutions that are much more better than others. Uh, so, so without kind of being an expert on on, on the Australian market, um, uh, I, I think that would be my, th- that's what I think about myself. How can I actually put money, my the money that are the funds that I have available to me into something that is uh, driving the world in a, in a better direction? Yeah. We had a great episode on, on this show with uh, John Treadgold, yeah. who's in uh, social impact investing, ESG investing. So uh, if any of the viewers and listeners want to uh, dig deeper into this uh, really important topic, they, they can do that on the second renaissance as well. But I guess the question there is like, where is your dollar best spend and how climate change ready is is that dollar so whether it's your mortgage or your deposit or your savings uh, your superannuation is it being invested in or funding say fossil fuels um as opposed to maybe the industries of the future lasse um thank you for uh rebuilding and 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 designing a, a better future and uh and more aesthetically pleasing future for all of us here in Sydney, but also for some of your other really great international work. It's been a pleasure meeting you face to face and uh, welcome back to Avalon and uh, certainly to, to Cape Mackerel Cabin anytime as well. Yeah, thanks, you. thanks so much. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. For more information about the Second Renaissance and our work on sustainable innovation, please visit my website, www.andersumanilson.com. We would appreciate if you can take a moment to share the podcast with a friend or a colleague and help build the movement. 
We hope that what we learn together on the second renaissance can help us all build a sustainable future for ourselves and our children. See you in the near future.